Good afternoon, I'm Dr. John Ewing with Spirit Lake Wellness, and with me today is Dr. Drake Speth, who has been studying sacred breath work. And so, Drake, could you tell me, what is sacred breath work? Well, John, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about this practice today. I'm very excited because I was recently certified in this modality, which is offered through the Crow's Nest Center for Shamanic Studies in Michigan. Um, sacred breathwork, you might consider it to be a variant of Stanislav Grof's holotropic breathwork. Grof calls it holotropic as a word that he kind of took from the Greek. You know, he made it up, but holo meaning whole, tropic meaning movement. So, the idea is movement toward wholeness, just like plants might be considered to be phototropic, moving toward the light. This would be holotropic. Groff talks about the innate capacity of the human being, and in this he agrees with psychologist Carl Rogers that we all have this innately guided movement toward wanting to be whole, wanting to be complete, wanting to be more genuine, wanting to be more authentic in our lives. And sacred breathwork, the variant of holotropic breathwork, is a practice that really allows for this movement toward wholeness. Where it differs from Groff's work is it's, it's, it's kind of designed to be a little bit more intimate, more designed for smaller groups, more designed for longer-term follow-up for some of the psychological impact and the spiritual impact that the work has. And it's more designed for community settings where that kind of support and that kind of follow-up is more feasible. It also doesn't shy away from terms like sacred, where the Groff work, he tends to really shy away from anything that will smack of the um, pure religious or pure spirituality kind of context. He prefers Jungian terms um, like numinous, um, and that's about as close as he get gets we sort of recognize it as being the sacred, the sacred being that place in our lives where we recognize beauty, where we connect to our own movement toward wholeness in our lives, um, our own reservations of places and spaces in our lives where we can connect with something that feels bigger than we are, something that feels a little bit more pure or something that feels... Um, quiet or still, all of those things. I like to say the place for mystery with a capital M in our lives. So breathwork is a practice that takes its cue from a lot of indigenous spiritual traditions, which uses the breath to really achieve an ecstatic state of consciousness, um, looking to, to get a, a sort of a different window on ourselves in a different window on the way the world works to shift consciousness into what is now called more commonly non-ordinary states of consciousness to really um, you know open up a new window on the self and and look at it in a different way so you mentioned uh, uh, Stanislav Grof and um, uh, there's a background I think in our culture uh, starting back in the 1960s. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about the background of the holotropic breathwork? Yep. 
Stanislav Graf, who is now well into his 80s, from what I understand, was a contemporary of folks like Timothy Leary and Ram Dass and some of those folks. And he was there with them in that whole scene of doing research on psychedelic substances and using those substances for psychotherapeutic purposes to overcome depression, to overcome trauma, to uh, overcome what we're now calling bipolar disorder, to overcome drug addictions. And as we know, a lot of that research was very controversial, and some have felt that Leary really kind of got out of hand with it and really lost his scholarly and scientific focus. Groff was one of those who tried not to do that. He tried to keep the research purposes um, to, to it. He tried to keep the scholarly aspects to it. But when psychedelic substances were made illegal, and a lot of those folks found themselves having to go in a different direction, Groff really kind of understood from the beginning that shamanic indigenous cultures had many ways of changing consciousness and using those for healing practices. They didn't just use plant medicines, which of course are the basis of psychedelic substances. They didn't just rely on those. Some cultures actually used other practices. And Michael Harner, the anthropologist, talks about shamanic drum beats and you know, listening to those as a way of doing that. Um, Mircea Eliad, who also did anthropological research in shamanism, identified ritual dance and ceremonial movement. Um, but one prominent feature being a means to shift consciousness fairly safely that we find universally in shamanic and even yogic traditions around the world is a form of breathwork. In yogic traditions, it might be referred to as pranayama, but I could go on and on, of course, about the ancient connections etymologically of that word breath with spirit and soul. But there was this kind of intuitive understanding that the breath is connected to consciousness shifts, which in turn leads us to these sort of ecstatic spiritual states, which could be potentially a source of greater self-awareness um, and, and potentially greater health and healing. So let's just briefly review some of the techniques that have been traditionally used to alter consciousness just to see if we're on the same yes. page. Um, we have fasting, uh, drumming, ordeals, uh, which often in, involve a lot of stress and fatigue, uh, drugs, and now breath. Yes. And of these, um, fasting sounds hard yes. for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people just get hungry and don't experience ecstatic states. Um, ordeals um, and stress, uh, some people keep their focus on their immediate situation and trying to uh, keep the flesh alive. Um, drumming, uh, drumming can work to alter consciousness. Uh, any hazards or problems with drumming? Um, yeah. I, I'm not aware of any. Um, and I think all of those practices that you identified have in common 
that they seem to be capable of inducing what I might call ecstatic states of consciousness based on hyperarousal um, or high physiological arousal, as opposed to practices that might emphasize what we might call trophotropic states of consciousness based on lower physiological arousal. And I think of meditation and trance um, associated with meditation and those kind of guided imagery and relaxation techniques um, when I think of those. It seems to be two different routes to opening up these new windows on the self. And I really am fascinated with the ecstatic states because I think they're less well-known or people are less familiar with them in some ways than they are guided imagery or hypnosis or meditation, those based on really kind of low physiological arousal or really relaxing kinds of journeys. These, the, what you mentioned, you know, the ordeal kinds of practices, even the fasting kinds of practices, the drumming, they are all associated with f higher frequency of heart rate, higher breathing rate um, or variations in breathing, and many signs of uh, physiological arousal. And when we get into those kinds of ecstatic states, I really think some unique experiences are possible. And breathwork is a you know pretty less well-known way of doing that, but actually pretty common practice when you look at the history of indigenous healing practices around the world. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, so let's just uh, review what ordinary consciousness is and then uh, maybe use that as a segue to talk about uh, altered states of consciousness. So in our ordinary consciousness, we are closely attuned to the outside world, the world of sensation, and then we are attuned to um, more or less a problem-solving uh, strategy of, of interaction with that world. Uh, would that be fair I to say? I would say so, yes. And, and then what is it that happens when we go into one of these altered states of consciousness? Well, I think um, when you talk about that state that we might call normal waking consciousness, I like to joke with my students when I teach about this stuff that, in fact, it's like having a radio station that we've just gotten used to listening to on the radio and we keep it tuned there all day long you know there's that sometimes doesn't occur to us to to sort of switch to another station on the dial and i know i'm dating myself when i'm thinking of those old-fashioned radio dials where you actually had a knob to turn and that little cursor would move across the band spectrum and you know suddenly you would find yourself at a whole different frequency listening to a whole other radio station and maybe getting a whole new experience of music or talk or whatever kind of comes through that particular station but unless you shift that dial you may never realize that there is a whole variety of spectrum um, frequencies to choose from. And similarly, we get used to WNWC, you know, the station of normal waking consciousness, where we don't uh, experience any other ways of experiencing ourselves except perhaps when we sleep and we experience a different window that way and we go into a trophotropic kind of dream state 
or moments in the day where we might drift out of normal waking consciousness and we'll be in a trancey daydream kind of state. Again, more of a trophotropic kind of um, place. And, you know, we experience shifts. I mean, when we daydream, we're experiencing reality in a much different way. You know, we are less aware of our surroundings and more open to internal stimuli and visual imagery. Um, we uh, have an increased uh, connection to creativity and very little actual connection or registration with what's going on outside of ourselves. Um, so we can experience those shifts, but we don't play around with other windows that we can open or other places on that radio dial. And breathwork offers an ecstatic option for moving that way on the dial, just like some of those other practices do. And, you know, compared to an overindulgence in psych psychedelic uh, drugs, one might argue that it might reasonably be safer to engage in that kind of an ecstatic practice than to um, indulge in psychedelic drugs without having any real knowledge of what dosage levels are effective or safe, um, what might get us into some troublesome areas, et cetera, et cetera. This is true. And you mentioned uh, uh, when people are daydreaming, for example, uh, we often have fantasies and we tend to dismiss some of these fantasies as, as not real. Um, and then there are uh, other, other altered states, for example, uh, a child who has gone to sleep in a darkened room and had watched some monster movies and the closet door is open and he experiences the monsters uh, emerging from the clothes hanging in the closet. And um, this is an example of what happens when our ordinary sensations are dim compared to that inner world, that other world. And sometimes those portals open. Sometimes these are not just pleasant experiences, although when we're daydreaming, we tend to, to focus more on the pleasant. Yeah. Uh, and then, but, but we tend to dismiss a lot of these experiences. For example, when people use psychedelic drugs, they dismiss their experiences, oh, I was tripping. Um, and when they uh, have an experience when they're daydreaming, they tend to dismiss that as just a daydream. And, and when they uh, are in that twilight state and they start seeing uh, things in the room, uh, they get a nightlight and kind of shield themselves against that other yes. world. Um, so these altered states of consciousness have a, a kind of a variable impact on us depending on what it is we, we think that we're experiencing and whether or not we think the experiences are, are real. Yes. Um, so it would seem to me that breath work uh, might provide a more easily attainable, uh, more reliable way of reaching these altered states. Would that be yeah, I would definitely agree with that, and, and uh, I love what you said, too, about the fact that we tend to devalue culturally, you know, the experiences and the creative potential inherent, even in daydreaming. You know, we, we want to discourage children from engaging in those states while they're learning in the classroom, and we want them to pay attention and live in the real world, and, 
you know, these are real opportunities missed for fostering creativity and understanding themselves in the world in new ways, ultimately. And, and I think it's a shame to squelch creativity because, let's face it, we need our artists and we need our creative potential because it's the only way to really connect with beauty um, in times when it seems like it's getting harder and harder to connect with beauty the artists among us and the creative potential in us is vital to helping us connect with something living and life-affirming in the midst of all of this. And, you know, breathwork would be a way of activating different places, potentially, I think, in consciousness in the brain, which allows us to experience the world and ourselves in a way that wouldn't be available to us. And Yes, as you say, as it turns out, it's a pretty reliable pathway in terms of some of the work that Groff has done and the research that he has done. He has really charted kind of a trajectory and really can help people understand in general terms what to expect while, of course, emphasizing that every person's experience is utterly unique and surprising in that regard. I think that the unique and surprising uh, aspect of this is is probably its value in that in this modern era we have so many very impressive and seemingly reliable sources of information uh, the media for example that helps to tell us what is real but there is an inner reality that many of us have forgotten how to access and that leaves a lot of us feeling empty and lost. And so I'd like to take a break uh, for the moment, and then when we return, we'll go into this a little bit more as to what are these altered states of consciousness that we achieve through sacred breath work, and how do we go about uh, actually practicing this. Uh, So uh, stand by, and we'll be right back. 